Thanks very much, Mark, and uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, nice to see at least some interest here in, in, in the subject. Always very nervous when it splits down into sort of four, pro, four streams like this, how many people are going to think that this is important, because, of course, it is a subject that's uh, very dear to my heart. In fact, the, the whole subject of EBVM, I think, is incredibly important, very dear to my heart. And I suppose being, a, being like that is a bit like being a member of a of a sort of minor, small minority, somewhat esoteric religion, um, which I am, I'm Jewish. Um, and coming here is kind of a bit like going to Israel, which I did a few weeks ago. And going there is a bit like coming here and you suddenly realize that, you know, you're not so much, but all of a sudden you're somewhere where everybody feels the same sort of way about it. In fact, um, that's a very nice feeling, even though I'm not religious, just that sense of identity with other people who have common common views. Uh, in fact, when I arrived, I had the, the star attached to my uh, badge, and I thought that was because I was Jewish. And then I looked around and saw everyone else had one. Oh, brilliant! <laughs> anyway, um, I, I, I have got involved in this area because uh, I initially started out with a group of people um, called the Smith's Masters Group because we were doing an MSc. Some of us then went on to do doctorates, uh, where our premise was that um, we wanted to see an advanced qualification in veterinary primary care. We wanted to see primary care recognized as, as a specialism. And we have finally, that started in 2000, it's taken over 15 years to get there, that we now have a certificate of advanced veterinary practice in veterinary primary care. And we do now have um, a, a level of advanced practitioner, RCVS recognized advanced practitioner in primary care. So we, we finally got the stage. Um, and why did I get interested in this area? Because it seemed to me that if we were considering, well, what are the criteria that you should be using to evaluate uh, a, a, a practitioner to, to determine whether they're advanced or not? And it seemed to me that, that really the most important determinant of that was their outcomes and their performance. At the end of the day, that's what that's what matters, and that's why I became interested in clinical audit, clinical governance, clinical effectiveness, um, and all those areas. So, so that's that's my story. That's who I am. Uh, who are you? Um, how many of you are in practice? Okay. How many of you in research? The majority. Um, how many of you are vets? How many of you aren't vets? <laughs> okay, I got a feel for it. Um, a good mix. That's that's nice. Um, so, uh, what we're talking about today is uh, clinical effectiveness, um, and uh, here we have a, a, a definition about it. So, it's actually uh, uh, taking the best available knowledge, um, and the emphasis there is on the best, not necessarily perfect. Uh, but to try and achieve opt optimize, uh, optimum processes and outcomes of care. Pretty straightforward, really. It's something that I'm sure we all prescribe to. Um, but uh, what's the challenge? Um, well, uh, what I want to talk about and what I want to achieve is actually translating best, best practice from all the EBVM that we have into changing the way that, that we, and when I say we, I'm talking about both the broader profession, but speaking personally, the personnel in my practice, uh, actually how I actually translate that at the coal face into doing things differently. Because just like Dan was saying that, you know, evidence in a vacuum, well, you could debate whether you can call it evidence or not, it's certainly not useful unless you do something with it. Um, uh, so, so I think this stage in the process really is very important. And um, so I want to change how Dan wanted to change the world um, and, and gave us a very good account of how he's beginning to do it. All I want to do is how we change how we do things at the coalface. Um, and that sounds terribly easy, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> but there, there are um, quite a lot of challenges to doing that, to actually coming away from a meeting like this and coming away from maybe a BSAVA Congress or whatever your particular area of interest it is, having your head filled of, of good clinical information, good research outcomes and studies, and then actually 
making a difference to what you do and not just making a difference to what you do but making a difference to what everyone in your working environment does uh, that's that's really the challenge so it's a big subject and uh, you know I, I spend I have full one-day workshops on clinical audit um, there's a, a CERTA AVP uh, module in clinical audit and one on clinical governance both of which cover these areas so you know we could spend a long time on this so I, I thought that the best way to deal with it really is just to kind of look at a specific challenge and see how uh, what those challenges are and how we could uh, face up it's a small animal challenge but it's only an example so I apologize if you're not in small animal practice this particular one um, I've taken from from uh, sitting okay, this is a real life event sitting down and, and it does happen from time to time reading the journal of feline medicine and surgery so uh, diligently doing my cpd uh, reading the journal and uh, i see a good article on diabetes mellitus in cats um i as i read it i realize that perhaps Diabetes mellitus is an area where we could do better in our management of our, our feline patients. So, uh, have a look at this. What I mean, what do you think about this as a paper? As you start looking at it, what what sort of uh, how convinced are you about it as a source of evidence? Should I be taking notice of it? Distinguished. Distinguished. Yes. Um, Eminence-based veterinary medicine, are you going to fall for that? Um, well, it, it, it's, it's a consensus report, so um, hopefully this eminent group, including at least one person in this room, uh, uh, can be relied upon. But, but I think what probably instills more confidence is when you start to look through the references, um, because uh, you turn the pages at the back and turn more pages, and in fact, um, you've got 11 pages of, of high quality evidence or evidence-based information that, that's been assessed by this panel uh, and really well really well referenced so um, I think you could I'm not here to actually talk about the quality of the evidence base for what we do but as far as I'm concerned as a bloke in practice this is good enough for me I'm happy to take take this as, as, as gospel um, but how do we actually, you know, what do I do with it? There is so much information, so much good stuff there. How do I actually translate good information, good evidence, into a change in the way that we do things? And that's what clinical effectiveness is all about. So this is a bit where I'd actually like you to divide into groups. I'll give you a pad. Uh, we'll just, won't spend very long on it, but I'd like you to... Um, divide into your groups and just think about the different things you could do after, you, let's say, you've read this article and you, you're, you're all enthused about spreading that out within the practice. What methodologies you could use to actually improve the way that you do things in, in the practice? So, let's. Okay, so there's some great animated discussion going on, and uh, it's a shame to break it up. If we had longer, I'd give you longer, but so let's stop, stop. <laughs> let's go around the groups and just see what suggestions you have. You've got this great idea, but, and you want to get vets to change the way that they're doing, not just vets, the practice to change the way they're doing things. What methods could you use to bring about change? Group one. Okay, we have we have the microphone now. Thanks. So that one, just to summarise, was basically a clinical discussion group, which, which, um, if I heard it correctly, is, is is done as a routine daily in the practice, and it'd be brought into that, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a forum for discussion, um, and then we also thought that everyone could be asked to read a journal that an article was in, and to discuss that at the next uh, group meeting. Um, we also thought that perhaps one person could be asked to read journals and then present it to the group. We could look at clinical cases, previous clinical cases that um, perhaps if we take diabetes, that 
cases of diabetes that had been managed in the practice and how they'd been approached. Um, we would look at practice protocols and perhaps update them. We could use a group messaging system, but how effective that would be, we weren't sure. And that was really where we got to. Okay, thank you very much. Next group. So, so far we've got tutorials, uh, journal club and discussion and journal club and practice protocol stroke guidelines. And we'll perhaps have a little discussion about, about the difference between those. I think the first group's touched a lot of things that, that we discussed. I think one of the issues with something like that is there's 11 pages, you said, of brilliant information that we assume is right. And if you just sort of present that to everyone, then half your clinical team probably won't end up reading it. There's a, there's a time factor. So I think we slightly looked at that the person who's read that article has taken an interest and they may look at it and say, right, there's some salient points here where we think we're perhaps deviating from what, what we can consider that article to be best practice and to bring those points for attention for a clinical discussion. And I think the importance is that the whole clinical team is engaged and things are adapted so they've all got a, a, you know, a stake in it and contributed to it. So at, at some point there is a set of, shall we say, guidelines rather than the protocol which can serve the practice well. Uh, people may deviate from that for all sorts of reasons, but it, that there's a, not a prescriptive um, guide, guidelines, but just a, a way of working through. And then I suppose, bear in mind, we're talking about audits, it'd be good to review the, some of the cases and, and then sort of review whether that new change in protocol adjustment to be made had, had, had a sort of clinical effect in, in a positive so, way. So an emphasis on producing guidelines. Um, the question then is, of course, how do you get those guidelines to actually result in change? And, and as we'll discuss, one way of doing that is, is with the use of, of audit. Um, can we pass the microphone? Thank you very much for that. It's going to get progressively harder, isn't it? Um, that's right. Next, next time we'll go the other way around. We were a bit derailed because we have a co-author in our group. So, so, um, but, so we didn't get very far. Um, we talked about reading it and some level of self-reflection and would agree what has already been stated by the previous two groups. Okay, thank you very much. And, and the final group. So we talked about a lot of the things that have already been mentioned. I think first of all, how to get other people to read it or talk about it, so how to communicate um, that the articles out there, clinical meetings or journal club or clinical review type meetings. Um, and then we talked about whether to get everyone to read it or whether the person who read it first to sort of make a summary of it and present that to, to the rest of the clinical team. Um, looking at how the consensus is different from what is already done in practice, assuming that most people do it the same way. So I guess that goes back to guidelines. Um, so if there aren't any guidelines yet, using it to form guidelines. Once you've identified the differences with your practice, um, do you want to implement change and how are you going to implement that change? And then I guess some form of audit to see whether it is making a difference because what's being discussed in that article might not work in your practice or in your area. Um, and I think that's pretty much it. Okay, great. Thank you. So let's see what what I've got as methodologies for clinical effectiveness and how they match up. I think, you know, we pretty well covered it. So um, we've got the practice meeting concept, the peer review concept. Um, this is a more general one rather than this specific case, but it, it could relate perhaps to a DM. You might have a cat with, with diabetes mellitus that goes into a ketoacidotic crisis that you feel may have related to bad management and therefore you would have a critical incident review to actually see you know, what went wrong, what could have been done differently uh, in order to not, not to apportion blame but to try and find out how you could change your, your mechanism. That can be a great motivator because people have seen the damage that can be done by not doing things optimally. Um, you can get feedback from, from clients. Um, not so much from your patients. We sometimes get it. Um, clinical guidelines, uh, I'll talk about a little bit more because I believe that, that normally they will be integrated into the uh, clinical audit process, which we're going to move, move on to. 
but certainly the production of guidelines, I think, you know, are, are important. That's a subject in its own right. Um, perhaps, yeah, it is worth saying, what's, what's the difference between guidelines and protocols? systematically developed, so this means that the evidence is systematically reviewed and that evidence is then, I guess, discussed um, with a number of experts who develop that guideline to make it appropriate for use. So certainly the guideline that we've just been talking about, about the diabetes, um, looks like what I would call a guideline, so it looks like there's a lot of evidence that's got references and there's a big list of authors um, who I suspect have <coughs> discussed. The, um, what they were sort of trying to make. I would argue that there might be a third group, um, possibly something that we could call guidance, that maybe you create when you don't have the evidence uh, for it, for it to be a guideline, that maybe you create within your practice. Um, but I think the definition of all of them needs to be very clear because I think people need to know where they stand as to how much adherence is needed to them. And that's either within a practice or um, things like if there's cases of litigation or things, if somebody hasn't followed that guideline, that protocol or that guidance, you know, where, where do they stand? Should they have definitely followed it? Is it completely open to interpretation with the intent of experience and stuff? So I think it's important. What a perfect answer. I couldn't have done it better <laughs> myself. Uh, yeah, I think it is more than semantics because I think that, that protocols, and it's, they're commonly used to describe everything, but I think protocols are things that you must do. So, you know, cleaning theatre, turning on the oxygen, um, you know, th that type of thing it, it is, forms part of a protocol. Um, whereas, and I would say probably what you're describing as guidance and guidelines, probably the difference between national guidelines of which we have perhaps relatively few, but exist within the NHS and their definitions and, and local guidelines, uh, which are formulated on a local basis, which are perhaps more along the lines of what you'd call guidance. Um, but I think are important because I think, I, th I think first of all, from a semantics point of view, guidance is there to help people. You know, and, and the terminology, I think, brings that out. You know, it's not there to dictate you must do this. It's there... Because actually, in my experience, uh, clinicians like guidance, but they don't like protocols um, unless they can clearly see where, where, where there's a need for them. But when it comes into their clinical freedom, then they welcome guidelines. They recognize that there's a, a need for uh, similar things to be approached similarly in the groups. That if a client comes in and, and, and we've got a dog with kennel cough, for example, is treated one by one way by one vet and then their other dog gets it and it comes in the next week and they see a different vet and it gets a different treatment, then even if both treatments are valid, that's going to end up with a somewhat confused client. So so in terms of uniformity uh, and support, but, but coming back to what you said about the freedom to move away from them, I think that uh, ideally clinicians should have them there to assist them, but should feel free to move away from, from that guidance. But, but be ready to justify it. You know, I haven't followed a guidance because in this particular case, I'm not dealing with a car that's a machine and always behaves in a certain predictably unpredictable manner. But you know, this is a this is a living animal and it's got a client attached to it, and this is these are the circumstances that that make it different. Um, so, and, and I think that um, making those re locally relevant is very important. That, that if they are imposed from above, they have much less chance of actually being followed than if they're formulated from, from the bottom up, that, that you maybe take national guidance but consider it in the light of the evidence and adapt it to what is best practice in your particular circumstances. Because best practice in itself does vary from circumstance to circumstance. What may be best practice in a referral centre in North London may be very different to what's uh, best practice in a veterinary practice on the Orkneys. Um, it's, it's, that's, that's the real world. Anyway, um, uh, and then the clinical audit cycle, and uh, um, that's really the area that 
uh, I'm going to focus on today as a tool for actually embedding uh, changes into the, into, into the way that we do things, because that's what I believe uh, clinical audit is. And I don't think I do have a different, do I have a difference between clinical audit and research? Uh, we did touch on it this morning. Yeah, I've got a slide on it, so, so we'll talk about that a little bit later. So um, audit at its simplest is just measuring something, uh, but as far as I'm concerned, in order to be a useful management tool, it has to be a cyclical process. So I'm more interested in talking about clinical audit cycle than actually talking about clinical audit per se. So you could just be measuring something, whether you have something, whether you do something as a one-off, and that would be an audit. Um, but what particularly interests me is, is as I say, this this continual circle of, of, of improvement um, because a clinical audit is, is part of a quality improvement process. That's, that's what it's all about. Um, it's about formulating guidelines, in my view. That's an essential part of the process. And then uh, measuring how well you put those in, into place. Um, so if you look at it schematically, um, you're preparing for the process, you're establishing these guidelines, um, you're, you're selecting criteria that you're actually measuring and getting those right is something that we'll kind of uh, divide up again and, and do in a moment. Um, and then you'll assess your outcome um, and look at how you can maintain an improvement. So it's a positive feedback loop. Um, it may be something that you might do once and you might get to that stage and decide that really there's no room for further improvement. You're quite comfortable with what you're doing and you may stop. But more often, and you may repeat it at a later stage, but more often, somebody's been shot, only one person, that's fine. Um, more often, it should be something that you do on an ongoing basis, uh, so that you're looking for improvement in, in what you do. And I, I can only go through this very quickly, as I say, I, I, I do commonly spend a day on this, um, or longer doing a module. Uh, but uh, just to look at some of these steps, um, so the first one, uh, in terms of preparation, um, involves, first of all, building a team of people who do it. Um, that was touched on in the paper this morning, um, looking at audit. Uh, who's going to be involved? Uh, it may well be a vet nurse-led audit. By and large, vet nurses are much better at running audits than vets are. They're much better at making sure that things are done properly, um, getting the right paperwork filled in and nagging vets or getting us to do things properly. Uh, it may be run by the management and or involved management, front desk uh, staff, and possibly, perhaps controversially, um, clients. And when you get this audit group of people who are hopefully enthused and interested in the area that you've decided you're going to audit, uh, you then need to plan the audit it's, itself. And so you're going to need to think about the resources uh, you need to think about the time that, that's needed to do it. Uh, I think it is important to recognize that um, a quality improvement process does require time and that you, uh, there needs to be protected time allowed for people to actually do the work that's, that's involved in it. Um, you need to think about communications um, with the practice as a whole. Um, and uh, you need to think about issues such as data gathering and, and thinking about your, your computer software systems, how you can get data out, whether you already code information or whether you consider that you will. If you're involved in the Compass project, then you'll have taken a big step uh, along that way. Um, but those are all the sorts of issues that, that you'll need to uh, think about. I think we've already um, spoken about... Uh, um, guidelines and, and, establish, and establish them on the basis of best evidence. Uh, I always uh, refer to Mark's excellent book at, at this stage. Uh, I don't think I have to tell you here um, what EBVM is all about. I think uh, we've all, we've all caught, caught on to that. We're all converts. Um, but on the other hand, not putting it there, I think, would be wrong because the, the whole point of clinical audit is actually getting best practice from the evidence base based on the evidence that's available and actually using that to bring about change. So um, the next step uh, would be to select the criteria that you're going to measure. 
Um, and those are so that, that's the nice definition of, of, of a criterion. And this this is actually can be quite difficult. It's where people often go wrong in order. They often overcomplicate it. Um, so when you think about thinking about criteria, um, this dream acronym is often used. So they need to be distinct. Um, they need to be something that you can actually define. You can't measure it if you can't actually define it. And we'll think about that, uh, and that may become clearer when we look at an example. Uh, they need to be relevant. So it's no good auditing and measuring a change of a criterion, which actually doesn't matter. It needs to be important and related to clinical outcomes. It should be evidence-based, and we've already spoken about that, but when you're going to choose a criterion, then you need to be confident that, that, that there is the evidence behind it. Um, it needs to be achievable. Um, you, you've got to look at an area of improvement that, that you actually have a realistic chance of, of making changes to, otherwise you're actually um, going to fail in your, you're going to be destined to failure. Uh, and it has to be measurable. Uh, and and that that can be quite thought-provoking. Um, and as I say, when you start thinking about an example, these will become much, much clearer, which is why I've chosen to do this in the way of sort of getting an example, which we'll come on to in a second. And there are basically, there are some additional things, but there are two broad groups of things that you can measure in terms of measuring performance. Um, first of those is processes. So are you doing certain things which the evidence base tells you that you should be doing? Uh, and the second is um, outcomes. So um, you're measuring something about the patient um, that is an outcome of the treatment that you're giving and the processes that you're applying. Uh, so processes or outcomes. And um, when you think about this and, and you relate it to uh, this article um, on diabetes mellitus, um, you think that, that actually, as I suspect is the, is the way in a lot of practices, we're pretty good at managing the acute cases. Uh, when they come in, when they're first diagnosed, the nurses are great and, and the vets working together with the vets, getting them stabilized and so on. You don't really think that's where the problem is. What you're worried about is that that long-term follow-up is not really followed up the way it should be, that you're not managing those long-term cases the way that, that is really uh, optimum for the, for the patient. So uh, you look at, go refer back to the article and you pick out one little bit. Um, and this is about fructosamine levels. And, and this is what the article says. Um, about um, fructosamine levels and what you should be aiming for uh, in the management of uh, diabetes mellitus. So what I'd like to do is, is now stop again and uh, if you return to your groups, which you're pretty much in, and I'd like uh, this side of the room to think about um, an example of a process audit uh, that you could run uh, on the management of uh, cats with, di with diabetes mellitus, the long-term management, and perhaps using fructosamine as as a pr uh, involving that in the uh, in the way that you formulate your your uh, audit. And I'd like two groups this side um, to to do an out to design uh, just in very broad outline, particularly thinking about the criteria you're going to measure. That's that's really what I think you what you think about, or criterion, pick one criterion, uh, an audit on uh, that's based on uh, your process, your outcomes. Okay, that's another five minutes. Outcomes. <laughs> okay, so let's let's see let's see where, we, see where we've got. To. I'm sorry to rush you again. Actually, workshops are stimulating, but quite time-consuming. So, uh, but I do want to try and get you get get you out of here by five o'clock. So, uh, um, I'll I'll drive you on. So, as as promised, we yeah we we come.
Okay, everyone. That's it. Time's up. Time's up. We come to this, this, to group, group four first, who, um, have been looking or thinking about, uh, running a, a, an audit on diabetes, the way that long-term management of diabetic cats is, is, is uh, being managed, uh, and looking specifically at, uh, uh, an outcomes audit. So, uh, what, what are you going to measure? <laughs> we didn't quite get to the end, I think, of the discussion, but so we decided that we'd measure fructosamine and grade every result according to to that table, so excellent, good, moderate, or poor. And for the maybe moderate and poor, just look at the history. Is there a reason they're poor because they're only just recently have recently been diagnosed? Um, to try and identify the ones that. Are chronic but still not managed very well and then use that to act on it. Okay. I I, I, I'm going to come to the second group and then we'll, we'll sort of maybe discuss it further and, and see, what, see what we've got between you. Thank you. So we, we decided that the first thing we wanted to do was have the practice establish what it is that we were most concerned about in terms of managing diabetic cats and we agreed that the probable uh, problem, prioritised problem would be poor control and so in taking a logical steps we thought the first thing we have to establish is why is there poor control and we need to decide whether it's owner and the owner interaction with the cat or a problem with the cat. We don't want to look at the cat problem first because we won't be able to discriminate between the owner versus the cat. So the first thing we wanted to do was have a set of outcomes where presumably we had our veterinary nurses discussing with all of our clients and evaluating how they are interacting with the cat, how they're administering the insulin, etc., 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 to give us some evidence to, if you like, uh, inform our decisions about how we're going to educate the owners and problems there. Okay. So that was our outcome. Our outcome was... But what are you going to measure? We're going to measure the efficacy of the owner's ability to inject insulin and their comfort in doing so. Is that is that an outcome? That is an outcome. Okay. Well, everybody, we think, sorry, everybody, we think everybody happy that's an outcome? Sounds like a process, like a process to me. I'm, I'm sorry, Professor. But no, no, well, not... we'd like to be controversial. <laughs> okay, so... In terms of, let, let's stick to measuring fructosamine at the moment. Um, uh, we, we've said you're going to measure fructosamine. Fine. Well, we're, going to, what we're actually going to do is record, look at the fructosamine levels that have already been recorded. You're going to do it retrospectively. Retrospectively. Yeah. Use it to try and identify, use that as a criteria to identify acts of poorly controlled. So essentially, Every time, you know, when we get to a, an orbit cycle, we would list the cats that seem to be having poorly controlled. And just go through that list and say, is there an obvious explanation? In other words, if they've recently been put, only recently diagnosed, well, we might expect it to take a little while. Okay. You're looking for those chronic but, cats that are, for some reason not being But you're still looking back at the process, and what I want to do is actually audit an outcome. So, um, what, I, what I want you to do, what, what I want to be able to do is to say, um, this is the measure of, of, of the success we want to achieve, and, and, and this is how we measure it. So, 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 so if we're saying it's fructosamine levels, let, let's start with that. Where, okay, go on, come on, David. Well, when I, I, I mean, I absolutely accept that, that an outcome would be, um, if you like, fructosamine level. I'm not not how you're measuring it, but I'm saying an outcome would be we have 25% or 100% or 75% of our owners have passed our set of processes that we believe make them acceptable administers, administers of insulin. Well, that's why it's a process outcome because you're, you're looking at the processes and, and your processes owner compliance with, with, with injection and you're going to have to find a way of measuring that. But what I, what's the, in terms of fructosamine levels, what's, what, what are the issues? If you're saying, let's say that we want to achieve, uh, let's go back again. 
let's say that we want to achieve, let's be realistic. So let's say that we want to achieve good glycemic control in our, in our DM patients. So we're saying that we want to achieve a fructosamine level of uh, not, more, uh, not more than 450 uh, micrograms per uh, mi uh, micromoles per litre um, of fructosamine. Okay? in our patients. Now you want to make that measurable. How do you actually make that measurable? What are the problems with just saying that? Well, no, you can just, well, you have to take the, pro, the blood test to do it. And that's the, that, that, that will come to as, as the process. Maybe we should have done this the other way around. But I wanted to start over here. But let's, let's say that the outcome is, which I think is perfectly reasonable to say we want to achieve good, good control or better in, in our DM patients. But just saying that doesn't give you something discreet enough to measure. Why not? Well, that's a different issue. Okay, we could be here a long time. So let me help you with this. Exactly. Exactly. So, if you're measuring an outcome, you need to be able to, to define specifically that, say, within three months of diagnosis, uh, we want to achieve a fructosamine level of um, 350 micromoles per litre or, or less. Or, or, or less, yeah. Um, obviously, you don't want to go, you don't want to go to, no, sorry, it's not 350, we're saying 450, aren't we? So, within the good, the good range. Um, and that's, that's, you know, relatively simple. I mean, you'd have to look at the evidence to see whether three months is the right time to take it. Um, let, let, let's carry on and, and think about processes. So, group two. Okay, so we're also talking about fructosamine, but obviously on the process side of things now. I think you've got to divide the case up into the, the initial stabilization period and then afterwards, once it's deemed stabilised by a set of... Keep it simple. Okay. Well, what we've suggested is that we uh, have a, a veterinary, probably a veterinary nurse would be the best person to manage this case so that they would be, got all the patient compliance and what have you, uh, so they've got a, a sort of contact there. But we would be having, uh, suggesting regular, maybe three-weekly, four-weekly fructosamine estimations which would create on our super practice management system set out a reminder, which would then be followed up with a phone call. So we're getting that compliance with the owner. Yeah, yeah. Stop there because it's great. That's that's. What, what, what have you come up with something different? Group one. <laughs> Even more simple. Slightly different than that. We went slightly more simple. Look. I guess we interpreted the question as being how we'd be measuring our own performance with these cats. And so we felt that the figure that we would choose to look at in our processes was the number of fructosamine samples we were doing per year um, for these cats because we felt if we were doing um, enough fructosamines, we were probably doing okay with our management. We weren't looking at the actual numbers. That was something we thought the other side of the room were doing. Okay. Um, we were looking at that and assuming that if it was zero or one, we could maybe do better, but there may be reasons for that, and we maybe set ourselves a target of four a year. Okay. That's, of course, take quite a long time to complete that cycle yes. because you're looking at an annual cycle. But, but yeah, the number, I mean, we, we did that in our own practice with blood pressure measurements where we put put guidelines into place to try and encourage the uh, measurement of blood pressure in elderly cats, and then we actually just looked at the number of, of blood pressure measurements. It's quite a blunt tool, um, but it certainly is something that you could audit and, and hopefully look for change and improvement. But yeah, I think a very simple answer would be, you know, we're going to look at a process, well, it's just, are we in a particular patient um, measuring fructosamine levels every... Well, Again, you could look at the evidence and decide what that frequency should be. Um, but, you know, are we, let's for argument's sake, doing it th three months after diagnosis at least, and then every three months after that um, with that sort of frequency. So, so very simple, um, you know, and, and I think I would argue that there are two very simple parameters that you could use in this example. You could, you could use you know, whether, whether, yes or no, 
have you measured proctosamine in this cat in the last three months once it's been diagnosed with DM? And yes or no, has this cat that's been diagnosed with, for, with DM for three months or more got, got a, an outcome within that good or better level? Yeah, I'm certainly not saying that those two parameters are the only parameters you could measure, and they may well not be the ones you choose. I, I'm only drawn to them as examples, and, 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 and importantly, very simple examples. So you've just taken two very simple things from a very big, complex picture, but you've hopefully ended up with something that you can actually do, uh, and, and something that will actually make a difference. Uh, and I think that's that's the important point. Um, so, um, in terms of, of, of then, well, you get a figure, but what does it mean? You know, what, what should you be aiming for? Should it be perfection? Um, so, this is a, about establishing standards. I think standards are, actually can be a confusing term. Um, and I actually think that, that to use the term target uh, can be a better one. Now, there may be national standards, uh, and in human medicine there often are national standards for certain parameters, be it, you know, control of hypertension and, and so on. Uh, in, the vet, in the veterinary sphere, by and large, we don't have them. Uh, so where do you go? What do you do? Um, and very often I think that what, what we have to end up doing is, is looking for this improvement. So you'll do... Um, an audit, and it may be a retrospective audit to start with, of how you've been performing in terms of, shall we say, measuring uh, fractosamine levels, either the frequency with which you do them or the results that you get. Uh, and then you sit down and you establish your guidelines that you're going to disseminate throughout your practice as to how to bring about change. And you then communicate as a team not just the audit team, but bringing in the whole clinical team to actually bring about change. Uh, and then um, you re-audit. So you're actually, you're benchmarking, but you're benchmarking against your own performance. With time, I'd like to see a, a situation where we have nas national benchmark standards available. Um, we're, we're beginning to get them with post-operative complications of neutering because uh, we've been collating a, a lot of data on that. Um, but, but that's the only area I know of where, where we really have those standards. And that's perhaps an area where we can look to more collaboration uh, to, to try and uh, get people together that are carrying out audits to not necessarily to compete with each other, but to exchange information about what sort of performance you can realistically expect in, in a real-life situation. And uh, I said I'd talk about audit and research, I think, as I say, in a, in a nutshell, this is it. And for those of you that were there for the discussion this morning, I, um, I'll be repeating basically what I said, which is, which is that it's more than just semantics. That's the important point, that, that, that we're trained as scientists, as vets. And so when we embark on an audit for the first time, we naturally are drawn to try and do a piece of practice-based research seen it happen time and time again and it overcomplicates it and usually makes it pretty much impossible it's obviously not impossible to do research from practice but it, it is a very significant undertaking and there are all sorts of parameters that you need to reach in order to make it a valid piece of research clinical audit is not a piece of research it's possible you may be able to use the data from it and contribute to a research program the audit in itself is a management tool. And so the validity of the data that you produce does not have to have the same statistically uh, that, same statistical validity 
uh, as, as a piece of research because it's not generalizable. It's personal to you. So I often actually use the analogy of, of looking at your annual accounts. You know, once a year or maybe more, you'll look at your accounts and you'll draw conclusions. They're telling you about how you're performing. Now, those, that's not research. That's not, that's not generalizable. You're not benchmarking it in itself against anyone else. You're just looking at how you're doing and you're drawing conclusions from it that you're then applying and bringing about changes to maybe the financial management. And it's similar with audit, that it's a management tool to measure how, how you're doing. You may then try and benchmark them alter, uh, externally, but it is very different to, to research. And as I say, in most areas where we're a long way away from external benchmarking, and of course, benchmarking does bring its own problems because you have to make sure that you're comparing like with like, and that that's a big issue within human healthcare, uh, where centres that you know take on high risk patients may end up with worse results when they're benchmarked against other centres doing similar work, but uh, with lower risk patients because they're not such sort of centres of excellence. Ironically, um, and let's just have a little look at the uh, the, the, the barriers to clinical audit. Um, what, what do you guys think that, that they may be in the last sort of well thirty seconds or so? What, what lack of time? Yeah. <laughs> what else? Blame. Sorry. Blame. Blame. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, in, I say it's very interesting because what I found in my own practice when I did my piece of doctoral research, which part of it involved introducing audit within my own workplace and looking at the sociological changes, was that we did have measurable improvements in performance that we could show. We also had measurable, tying in with what came in earlier in certain areas, um, cost benefits. Um, so although there are costs to doing audit, and that's you know one of the obstacles, there are also cost benefits because good medicine is good for the patients. But actually, you know, measuring fructosamine levels regularly is is actually good good for the bottom line as well. And there's nothing nothing wrong with that. Um, so so, um, but I found within my practice that the the biggest benefit was actually a cultural one that in order to bring about this continual cycle of improvement, you very quickly learn that it's you first of all have to accept you can always do things better. Uh, and that's quite a big thing for a vet to accept, you know. We're, we're actually, we've got our MRCVS and, you know, we, therefore what we say is right. Um, and, if, and if it's not, then, you know, we're worried that we're going to, um, at risk the awe of the or the wrath of the Royal College or, or the Veterinary Defence Society, and uh, our name is going to be. So there's a lot of pressure on us to to, to defend what we do, um, but you can't be involved in a process of continual improvement like this unless you accept that actually we're all human and that most of the time there are many different ways of doing things and we don't usually do things optimally. Uh, and then coming on to blame. Um, so that's that, that's the blame part, and the other thing is that we also learn very quickly that in order to get an improvement in performance, you have to work as a team. Uh, it's not just the vet that has to do things differently. Um, it's not even just the vet and the vet nurses. Uh, it is the whole team. You've got to have everyone buying into it, understanding why it's important, reinforcing the messages between them. Um, so the front desk staff will be just as important. So, so as I say, the benefits to me of audit in terms of changes in, in culture, team working, no blame culture are, are probably just as important as the changes in performance that you can achieve from it. Um, so inertia, getting off your bum and doing something, I think, is, is an issue. Time is a real one, and, and, and there does need to be protected time to do that. You need to w think about that before you start. Um, there are costs involved, but I don't think, other than the time cost, which is which is significant, but I don't think the costs of doing audit are necessarily very high. Um, there is this issue about impingement upon professional freedom, um, and, and that relates back to the discussion that we had about guidelines and protocols, um, and, and, and the skill to do it. Uh, you need to be, you, you do need skills to do it. I think these are skills that are, are taught. To, to medics, um, but 
by and large, as we saw from the paper earlier, aren't, aren't yet being taught to, to veterinary students. Um, so there are skills that, that people need to acquire in order to be able to audit successfully. So just a very quick summary uh, of clinical audit. Um, the fact that it is all about quality improvement, so it's an ongoing cycle, it's not just something you do once. Uh, that you need to pick the areas of audit carefully uh, so that there are areas that you think you can obtain uh, an improvement in, that where you can do better, um, that you feel are important. Uh, you need to build a team, both for the audit and within the practice, in order to get your guidelines into place and actually bring about improvement. And by doing that, you will then hopefully create a positive, no blame, working environment. You need to, as we've done, think carefully about your criteria because you can get very muddled with that and actually just having simple measurable criteria is really important and about what standards, you know, what's realistic, what should you be aiming for um, or should you aim for 100, try for 100%, see what you achieve and then just try and get better each time you, you audit uh, by going back and looking at your, your guidelines and how they're being applied, see if they're right, see if they should be changed, see if awareness which first of all will go up and then will start to drop off as awareness drops down again. You have what's called the Hawthorne effect which is very interesting where actually the act of, the act of measuring something in itself improve results in improvement in performance but it's not permanent it wears off so you, you need to review that and use the best evidence available and, I, and, and so I think the important thing there is is that it's not necessarily per, perfect evidence uh, using the best evidence is is a lot better than not using sound evidence at all so you we're in the real world and hopefully something that we'll move on and do more of is exchanging data with colleagues. And, and, and we are now looking, as, as I said earlier, at using the Vet Evidence uh, website uh, and, and the forums that are going to be developed on it as a place where we can exchange information about clinical effectiveness, about clinical audit, uh, and maybe people who are involved in audits can, can exchange information about how they're doing it what they achieve, what sort of results they can reasonably expect to get. So um, that's it for today. Um, I, it's, it's pretty late. It is the graveyard slot. I am happy to take questions, but I'm also happy for anybody who needs to go to, to go off. I won't be at all insulted, but if you want to stay on for questions, very happy to stay behind and discuss.